Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Good morning, Doxedo Hatfield. Isn't it amazing that we can be online together? If you're a guest, if you're not part of our church this morning as well, we just really want to welcome you. This is a brilliant moment for us. We are experimenting a bit, and uh, I think it's just brilliant to see all the faces and the comments and the engagement. It's awesome. If you don't know me, my name is Joe, and together with my wife, we lead the team that leads Doxedo Hatfield. And maybe I can ask you, as the slide has said, you can open up your Bible with me this morning to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, as we are going to continue this series that we're calling Not Do, But Done. Now, a couple of years ago, I had a training partner as part of a bigger group, and this was a guy who was very closed off emotionally and, you know, on issues of spirituality. His walls were very tightly built around his heart, so we never spoke about those kinds of things, and that's what made the next thing that happened so weird. This one morning, he messages me, and he says, listen, can you please meet me just an hour before the class? And, you know, I, I pitch up there, and the moment I see him from, uh, you know, five kilometers away, you could see this guy was in an absolutely broken state. And we sit down, and we start speaking, and basically his story comes down to the fact that over the last couple of years of his life, he had fallen into this pattern of sleeping with other women. He was cheating on his fiancée, and he was sleeping with these women who were also married to other men. And the last time that this had now happened, the husband of this woman that he had slept with had found him. And he had come to his flat and he had physically assaulted him. And it it was, you know, it, it goes without saying that this was the lowest point that he had ever experienced in his life. And, you know, as well, I was trying to just navigate this, this conversation pastorally. At one stage, this issue of spirituality comes up. And I'll never forget his comment. He suddenly chimes in and he says, you know, of course, I'm a Christian, but I'm one of God's naughty children. I'm one of God's naughty children. And, you know, in that moment, that just recalled phrases I've heard so often from people. You know, I don't know what his stance on Christianity was. I'm not sure if he was a Jesus follower, but I've heard people so often say things like that. Or maybe something like, you know, Christians, we're not perfect. We just forgiven. Or maybe the one that always gets me is I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And my issue today is not that, you know, it's just bad theologically. I think it's because it's speaking to something so much deeper. It's speaking to identity. How do I see myself in view of how God sees me through Jesus? You know, I can tell you that in my own life, this, this issue, this journey with identity has been one of my greatest and to this day challenges. Coming to grips with what God says about me in his son, Jesus Christ. You know, I remember that in our family, this issue of sexual brokenness has always been almost just part of what's happening. Almost all the men, if you go up to our family tree, all of them were unfaithful to their wives. And at one stage, it almost felt like this was an identity for the men in our family. And trying to war against that. Is that just who we are? Is that just who I am? And in that area of sexual brokenness, I've had my wrestlings and not trying to wear it as an identity. For most of my teenage years and into my young adult life, I was absolutely addicted to pornography, wreaked havoc on my life and relationships. And I say this now with deep regret and shame in my heart. But if I'm just being honest, when Shay and I met each other, my now wife, there was the season where I was the one who was constantly pushing her sexual boundaries. 
And this question arose in my heart. Is this just simply who I am? I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And I want to ask the question this morning. Is that kind of stance on our identity, is it even biblical? Is it true? Because I want us to tackle this misconception that Christianity is simply about forgiveness. That in Jesus, God has come just to wipe the slate clean on our lives. And that's it. Even if you ask, you know, people today, what's wrong with the world? People will say all these outward in kind of things like, you know, people do the wrong things. They belong to the wrong groups and parties. They don't think and act progressively enough. So what's wrong with the world? According to us, it's all outside in. But the Bible has a completely different view. It's saying the issue is not outside in. Mankind's issue is inside out. The issue is that mankind fundamentally lives from a broken identity. And I want to show you today that in the good news of the gospel and the good news of Jesus, it's not just that God has brought forgiveness to us, but he has brought us a power, a new life, a new identity to live from. And the question is not how we often phrase it, you know, if you were to die tonight. The question is when you wake up tomorrow morning, how is your identity and your life completely different? Because there is such a power available to us within this new identity in Christ. And I I think some of us have plateaued in our expectation of what Jesus can do through our lives. So many of us are are still struggling with those year-old temptations and those age-old, you know, the frustrations I walk around with and the anger and the short-temperedness or the lack of faith. And I just want to show us today that God has more than that for us. He doesn't have a second chance for you. He has a brand new identity in mind. Jesus did not come to this earth so that God can manage your sin. Just move it around like a messy table. He has come to fundamentally reinvent our identities. So let's look at that in Romans chapter 6. This famous letter from Paul, the apostle, to the church in Rome. And he is writing passionately about how the good news of Jesus transforms everything from the inside out. And in Romans 6, he says the following. What then should we say? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? So after Paul, now for six chapters, he's been speaking about the fact that relationship with God, grace is something that we don't achieve. We receive it because of what Jesus has done. And then, of course, the natural question arises, oh, but that's true. Can we just do what we want? You know, do we have this holy credit card that's bought by the blood of Jesus and you can just rack up sin as much as you want? Is that how it works? And listen to Paul's answer. He says in verse 2, absolutely not. Why? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's powerful. But... But what does it mean when Paul says we have died to sin if you're a Christian today? I don't think it means, I'll tell you this, I don't think it means that we are, we are gradually dying more and more and more to sin as Christians. Because we know you are either declared dead or you are not. There's no like, I'm sort of dead, almost dead. You either declare dead or not. You know, it's like Trevor Noah says, dead, dead, dead. 
And it's, and it's also not, I think, just seeing yourself as dead to something in that sense. You know, it's almost like the mafia boss saying to his son, you know, you are dead to me. You know, it's not, it's not that. There's something more fundamental happening here. What is it? Paul says in verse 4, read with me. He says, therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death. And this is powerful. In order that... Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. <laughs> That's amazing. So Paul is using this phrase of baptism once again, and we've, you know, we've said in the past that baptism simply means to be fully submerged into something. So yes, the act of baptism in water submerges you in water, but you can be fully submerged in your favorite Netflix series. You can be fully submerged in a bowl of pasta, you know, late at night when you should be sleeping. We can be fully submerged into anything. And Paul is saying something so miraculous happens. The day that I put my faith in Christ and what he has done in his finished work, it says that we are submerged fully into the death of our old self through the cross. It's not that you're getting a second chance. You know, he's making you, he's saying, okay, but try again and, and, and do better this time. The, you know, the slate's clean. No, he's saying you got submerged into the cross of Christ and your old self is dead dead. There is no more BC life for you. And more than that, he says now, because of that, you are raised not to a second chance, but you are created anew spiritually. You have literally a new identity. You are a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5 says. So friends, do you hear what that means? This kind of unification with Jesus, it recreates us. So verse 5, Paul says, if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we certainly also will be in the likeness of his resurrection. So that word united, it's a horticulture, it's a gardening term. It means to be grafted into something. So our old life, we were dead, but we have been grafted into the life of Jesus. Guys, can we, can we just stop there for a second? Can you hear the level, the depth of the power that is available to you in Jesus? You don't have a second chance. You have a new life, a new identity, a new standing in Jesus. Christianity is not trying harder, having you know, a new leaf in life. It's adopting and accepting and living from this brand new identity. And we so often, you know, we come to Jesus and we're expecting the very least of what he's offering. If I can just have a bit of peace in my life, if I can just feel that my life means something, if I just don't go to hell or something like that, I think in Jesus all of that is given, but I think so much more is given. Because being united to Christ means that everything that's true of Jesus legally is now true of you. His righteousness is your righteousness. Every victory, every medal on his chest is now given to you. It's counted to you. So friends, do you hear what the potential of your life can be from this point onwards? You do not have a second chance at your old life. You have a new life, a new power. You have a new grace at work within you. I mean, just think about almost every single person, not maybe every single person that God has used mightily throughout the last 2,000 years, they were deeply flawed. I mean, Paul was this abrasive and hard man. Peter was a coward at times. 
The Apostle John, he was vengeful even at times and arrogant. Almost all of the women in the early church had very shady pasts, and yet God used them so mightily. They literally changed the world. There's not a politician or a leader alive in the last almost thousand years that can claim to have done what the early church has done. And guess what? They are not cut from some kind of different cloth than you and I. You have the same identity in you. You have the same Jesus in you. Can I just say this again? We're going to keep on saying it throughout this whole series. It's not about what you can do for Jesus. It's what he has done for you on the cross and now what he wants to do through your life in his power. He gives you his identity. You're not trying to fix your life for Jesus. You are accepting and living from the identity given to you by the finished work of Christ. And so Paul gets very practical now. Verse 11, he says, okay, so all of, all of this is true then. So what? He says, so you too, what? Consider yourselves, number one, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of your body to sin as weapons of unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves, secondly, to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. That's powerful. This whole passage builds up to these two ideas. If Jesus is who he says he is, and I believe he is, then twofold, consider yourself in light of who he is. Consider your new identity, and from that place of identity, offer yourself in a new way to God. So let's just look at those two things just for a couple of minutes. First up, Paul says, consider yourself in a new light. And here's the question, if you're a Christian today that's listening to me at this moment, my question to you is, are you fundamentally a sinner, a broken person, you are just forgiven, or are you a saint? Are you a son of God? Are you the righteousness of God? Are you adopted into his family? And yes, I'm still maturing. Yes, I'm still growing. Yes, I'm still learning to enter into my identity. What's the fundamental way that you consider yourself? Because your identity will precede your activity. If I'm just the, I'm just the worm, I'm just a sinner, you will live like that. And you know, this word that Paul uses in the Greek here for to consider yourself, it's the Greek word logizomai. It's an accounting term. You have to count one thing, consider one thing as another. It's almost like, you know, the joker card in some card games where you can, you can consider, you can count this card as another card. You know, Mia, our youngest, she's four years old. She's now finally at that age where we can play some basic card games together, and it's, it's a ton of fun. But I could see how this idea in some games tripped her up at the beginning of like, how can this card that looks different be considered this card? It doesn't make any sense. And yet that's what God is saying in the first six chapters of Romans through Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that God in Jesus, the day that you put your faith, your trust, your hope, not in religion, not in what you can do, not in trying to be a good person, but what Jesus did, God logizomize, he considers Jesus in your place. You are counted as righteous. And that's not something that fluctuates with your performance. That is the truth. And now Paul says, now it's your turn to logizomai. Now it's your turn to consider yourself 
in that new identity. And maybe he's saying, listen, I, I don't feel dead to sin. On the contrary, sin feels very alive in my life at times. It's a lot of fun. It's very tempting. And I'm, I'm with you. Listen, I'm no saint here in actions at times. But that's missing the point, isn't it? Even when we speak like that, it's already missing the point. The point is not that you would have this deep emotion well up in you, that you would feel you know, this, this new life and then you would act upon it. It's not some self-spoken um, you know, kind of uh, thing I do in the morning. You know, I stand in the mirror and I'm like, yes, I am righteous, I am righteous, I am new, and then I act like it. It's not like the students, you know, before your exam in the morning and you stand there and, you know, I'm brave and I'm smart and I'm accomplished, even though you started studying last night and you just say that to yourself over and over again. It's not that kind of thing, friends. God is not saying if you feel this way first, then the faith and the action will come. No, he's saying you put your faith in what was done first and then the feelings will come. No, you first consider yourself, count yourself, what's true over your life Jesus is true over your life. What he has done, consider that first and the actions and the emotions and the courage will follow. I think in Dr. Day, probably our favorite picture of this is that of metamorphosis, of one thing completely changing in its DNA and structure into something else. You know, we have this children's book that we read to our kids of these two worms, and, and the one is really ugly. And so they even sing this song together of, you know, he's so ugly that no bird will ever try and catch us. But then at the end, it's this twist, you know, massive twist in a book for a five-year-old. Didn't see that coming, you know. I'm going to spoil it for you, so hashtag spoiler alert. But they both go into their cocoons, and the one emerges as a moth, and the other one emerges as this beautiful butterfly. And almost the surprise for themselves of, wait, I don't even look at all like I used to. You know, you can't imagine this old fat caterpillar has now become this beautiful butterfly. But the point is, he's now acting like a butterfly. Why? Because he is a butterfly. It's not this cosmetic change that Jesus brings to our lives. If you ask people who are Christians, what do, what do they believe, what do they do, it's usually something like they are people that are trying to live a better life. That's false. I'm not trying to live a better life. I am living from a new life in Jesus. You know, that cosmetic versus you know, deep, deep, deep change. It's almost like these extreme makeover shows that we often watch, isn't it? Like extreme makeover home edition or the biggest loser or these kinds of shows. The issue with that, you can go and do your own research. Time and time again, they've showed that people who exit those shows within a couple of months sometimes on the biggest loser, they've picked up all the weight and more. The people with these extreme makeover home edition shows, many of them, most of them research shows will end up in bankruptcy having to sell those homes. Why? Because just a fresh coat of paint and some, you know, plastic surgery, it doesn't change who I am on the inside. It doesn't change my core beliefs about who I am. Guys, Jesus is not wanting to give you a fresh coat of paint. He doesn't want to just, you know, give you a new wing to your house. He wants to fundamentally change your nature, your identity. And it is identity. Why? Because you know what's happening? Mankind is in an identity of sin. That's the truth. The Bible says God in Genesis 1 created us in his image, in his likeness to know him and represent him. 
But Genesis 3 shows us this pattern that's ever repeating of mankind turning to himself or herself to, to worship self, to worship the created and turn from God. And that launches this whole idea of we now have the identity of sinners. So yes, we walk like sinners, we smell like sinners, we act like sinners and speak like them because our identity is such. And that's why every culture that's ever existed has phrases and words. They've got, they've got lingo to try and explain this deep guilt that's at the heart of every person. Why do I feel guilty as if I've missed some kind of mark? I'm not making the cut. Why do I feel guilty that I'm not doing what I should to others? Why is that there? And that's why when Jesus dies on the cross and he invites us to not just you know, go to church, but to have a full 180 in mind and heart to give ourselves to his finished work, something so fundamental happens in that moment. When the Holy Spirit takes you and he unites you to the death of Jesus, that old sinful identity is dead. Jesus kills the old self that used to be you on the cross. And he raises you to new Life, and that's not an issue of degree. You know, I'm 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 almost a bit new, just a little bit more. You know, tomorrow I'm sort of more new, and I'm just I'm growing. And that no, the Bible's language is not of degree; it's of category. It uses things like birth and being transferred into the kingdom, of being adopted or marriage. You know, men, let's be honest. If you tell your wife, well, you know, I'm going to do what I want for 30% of my time because we're just 70% married. We're not there yet, right? 70% married or transferred. You know, I move over to my new job. Guys, I'm going to just take Fridays off because I'm still 80% into this new job. of 80% kind of trans. Yeah, let's just be honest. Your marriage is going to be a disaster and your new boss will soon be your former boss. Very soon, right? So we can't use these things to say I'm sort of getting there. Either you are born or not. Either you married or not, and the Bible says in Jesus, you don't have a second chance. You are born into this new identity. You transferred into it. The sinful you is dead. And that position that we have before God because of Jesus, that righteousness, which means right standing before God, it doesn't fluctuate with your performance up and down. Oh, you're doing well. Oh, you're doing bad. No, your position in Jesus is eternal and secure, cannot be challenged. And so what we need, what you need, what the world needs is not self-help or a second chance and religiosity. What the world needs is fundamentally a new identity to live from. And that's what Jesus comes to do. Now growing into that, yes, Coming to grips with your identity, yes, that's a process. Friends, that's the Old Testament. That's, you know, the, the people of God getting rescued from Egypt. God takes the Israelites out of Egypt. But getting Egypt out of the Israelites, yes, that's a process. You know, Shay and I and our kids, we moved here two years ago to come and start Doxedeo Hatfield. And guess what? I lived in Bloemfontein for 30 years of my life. Shay and I, we born and bred, Bloom people. So 30 years of my life, and now, literally almost in an instant, we pack up our things and we come here. But guess what? Getting us out of Bloemfontein, simple process. Getting Bloemfontein out of us, that's going to take a while. So, I mean, in Bloemfontein, we have something called winter. 
Um, Pretoria people, they imagine they have something like that here. No, friends, in Bloemfontein, you have a minus nine when you get into your car in the morning. So that first winter here in Pretoria, on my way to the gym early in the morning, that first morning I wake up, I've got my like 70 layers on and my 40 beanies, you know, on my head. And I'm about to like wrestle, you know, a polar bear as I exit the door. And I get out of my car at the gym and I'm like... What is this? Like, what, what is this thing called winter here in Pretoria? Or traffic, you know? Traffic in Bloom is really cute. It's like cute traffic. Right? It's like, I'm four minutes late. Can you believe it? God, why do you hate me so? In Pretoria, the first holiday that we come back from, from the, from the beach, you know, we end up on the highway between Joburg and Pretoria at five o'clock on a Friday afternoon. We didn't think about that because you just arrive in Bloom. We sit for like an hour and a half on the highway because we still have a lot of Bloom in us. You know, I think a great example, just to show you the lengths that we have to go to to prepare these sermons, there's an early 2000s movie that I think illustrates it well. It's called The Princess Diaries. Friends, I just confess the fact that I had to look into this, and I'm sorry, I feel dirty having to watch this rom-com from the early 2000s. I mean, Anne Hathaway looks like 14 years old, so it's like this, it's a very late 90s, early 2000s movie, but I think it illustrates it so well, because her identity at the beginning of the movie is she's this struggling New York young adult who suddenly realizes through a whole bunch of things that happen that she actually is royalty in this small European country. So getting her out of New York is one thing, but getting the struggling young New York girl out of her, that's a completely different story. See, am I dead to Bloom and alive to Pretoria? Is she dead to the New York struggling persona and alive to European royalty? My question is, are you still clinging to your old identity? Yes, I'm just a struggling sinner that's just forgiven. God just tolerates me. Or am I dead to that old person and alive to Jesus? Has that happened in my heart? That's the question. Because very often it's so easy for us just to hold on to that identity. It's almost so safe and simple. Oh, I'm just a sinner. I'm just a worm. No, Paul says, consider yourself dead to the one because you are alive in Jesus to a new life. And then secondly, he says, because of that, number two, offer yourself. Yes, consider yourself, but offer then yourself. Don't just see yourself in this new identity. Live from that new identity. So read with me again, just 11 and 2.13. It says, and do not offer any parts of your body as sin or to sin as weapons of righteousness or unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead, Offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. Paul says, yes, consider yourself a new identity, but now offer yourselves from that new identity to God as someone whose life represents the fact that Jesus is my savior and my king. I give myself to him. Because the reality is Paul is saying, listen, all of us are already giving ourselves to something. There's already a king on the throne of your heart. Doesn't matter who you are. If you're atheist, agnostic, if you're seeking, if you're spiritual, you've already got someone, something on the throne of your heart. And imagine almost that scene of like these ancient kings or royalty where the people will come and just, you know, they will lay down before them. Oh, my king, I come and present myself to you. 
Paul is saying every single one of us, we get up in the mornings and we present ourselves to something. And maybe you're saying to me, no, 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 I'm independent. I'm strong. I don't, I don't listen to anyone. I do what I want to do. Well, Paul has already thought of that objection. So he says in verse 16, don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, he says, you are slaves of the one that you obey. Something, Paul says, is already at the center point of your heart and you are already giving of yourselves to them, to that thing, to that person, to that cause. Now, what does that look like? How do we know what that is? I love this. Paul says in verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its what? Its desires. Its desires. And the Greek word that he uses there is epithumia. Thumia just means desire. I have a desire for something. But the moment you add that epi, it's the way we get our word epic from, it becomes this ultimate desire. It's not just that I have a desire, I have an ultimate desire. So I have a desire for money and I don't get it. So what happens? This ultimate desire, I have an epi desire for money. And so I don't get it. So what happens? I become bitter. I feel, you know, I'm living the second rate life. I'm, I'm angry at the fact and I'm jealous of the fact that other people always have what I don't have. And so I overwork and I'll maybe even cheat so that I can get what I feel I deserve. It's an epi desire that rules over me. Or I so believe that I have to have a spouse or a girlfriend or a boyfriend that if I don't have it, this epi desire leads me to the place where I say, well, then life is not worth living. Because I'm not even worth it. I'm probably just a waste of a person. God, why did you do this to me? Why do you leave me alone? And I'll cross any kind of sexual or relational boundary just so that I can have someone in my life. That epi desire, that ultimate desire is ruling over me. So how do I know what that is in my life? I love this Christian counselor, David Polison. He says, there are three quick tests that we can do in our own life. And I want to leave you with that today. Maybe just to go and say, God, who is actually on the throne of my heart? He says, the first one is anger. You know, when, when you are blocked by someone or something to get something that's good in your life, you get angry. And that's a good thing. It's a normal thing. But if you get blocked from an ultimate thing, from an epi desire, you just don't get angry. You are livid. You snap. You break. Because something is keeping me from what I rightfully should have. What makes you most angry in life? Well, the second test could be fear. You know, if I lose something that's good in my life, or maybe if something is threatened in my life that's good, then guess what? Then I'm fearful. That's a good thing. It's a normal thing. If I were to know that my kids are in danger, I would be fearful. That's good. But if I, you know, if, if something that's an epi desire, an ultimate desire is threatened, then I'm not just fearful. I am fear stricken. I'm filled with anxiety. I'm so fearful that I literally become paralyzed with fear. I can't think straight. What makes you most fearful in life? Or lastly, just this third taste can be sadness. You know, when I lose something in my life that's good, I should mourn. I should grieve. That's good. But when I lose an epi design, ultimate thing, it's not just that I mourn and I, and I grieve, but I am, I'm befallen into a state of permanent grief. I literally fall apart emotionally and spiritually for months, for years at a time, because this ultimate thing that brought me security and identity and hope, it's been lost. 
Guys, can we just maybe take some time this week? Can we just openly speak to our community group members and just say, friends, if I'm honest, if I look at things like anger or fear or sadness, I realize there are things that are sitting on the throne of my heart that doesn't represent the identity that I have received in Jesus. And why, why is that important? Why is it important to be aware of what is sitting on the throne of my heart? It's because this very famous verse in the book of Romans, Romans 6, 23, some people can quote it from heart, but get the context. It famously says, for the wages, the payment of sin is death. But the gift, look at the contrast, of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is Paul saying? He's saying that the master that we have in death, the master that we have in sin, it always leads to brokenness. Money and sex and power, status, wanting to find other people's approval, wanting to prove my parents wrong, wanting to to prove my own worth amongst other people, trying to find my identity in a spouse or a girlfriend. He says those are cruel masters because they wages what they ask of you. It's always death. Money tells you, you better serve me and win. Otherwise, I will curse you. If you don't make it, then I will make you empty and alone and poor. Relationships, sexual pleasure tells you, you better you know, stay skinny and attractive. You better make sure there's someone in your bed or next to your side. Otherwise, you will be alone and you'll be a sad sack for the rest of your life. It's a cruel master to serve. And Paul says, look at what Jesus comes to do. He does not bring us a wage that we need to earn. He brings us a gift. I will give you my joy and my hope. I will give you a new life and not as a wage, as a gift. And Jesus is the one master that if he finds us, if we find him, he will will heal us. He will make us whole. But if we fail him, he will forgive us. He's the one master that will not break us, but he will bless us. And so I just want to leave it there today and say, you know, that I've been reading just the last couple of weeks about the slave trade in America and in, you know, Saudi Arabia and in, 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 in Africa and in India and a whole bunch of these places. And, and something that's so interesting, they say, regardless of the context, something that was found is that even when slaves were, you know, they were emancipated, they were freed, whenever they would still come across one of their old masters, they would tremble. They would have these physical, emotional reactions of fear and anxiety. Why? Because even though they are free, they are still held in the identity of their old self. Friends, I want to say to us, if you're a Christian, you do not have to answer to the old masters of your life. You are not a sinner in Jesus. You are a saint. You are a holy one. You are the righteousness of Christ. And the deeper the depth of your heart is gripped by that idea, you will see a new life erupting from you day by day by day. So I just want to lead us maybe just in a moment of prayer, just to ask the Holy Spirit, just to reveal to us, God, what is my fundamental identity? How do I consider myself? And then secondly, what am I giving myself to? And maybe just as I'm praying, just as the Holy Spirit will just come and bring such a a sense of truth over your heart today and that your life would align to a new identity. So I'm going to ask you maybe just where you sit, just to raise your hands like this, just in a posture of surrender. Maybe on your couch at home, if you're in bed, that's perfectly fine. I just want to pray with you as we just raise our hands. 
And so Jesus, I come and pray for every single person that can hear my voice now. I pray that whatever their old life was, it would, it would not just be replaced, God. It would be absolutely overwhelmed by the identity of who Jesus is. God, if there are Christians listening to me that still hold on in fear to their old selves, may they let go today and embrace who Jesus is. May we have the courage to come out with these old patterns of living, of sin, of brokenness, and say, this is not who God has made me to be. And therefore, I bring it into community. I bring it before the throne. I pray, God, that we would be so consumed by who you are that our whole life would become a weapon of righteousness in your hands. Pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said right where they are, amen, amen.